Hello everyone and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack D'Lo Boblick, and my lovely, luscious, ladylike wife, Hi, I'm Emily D'Lo Boblick, watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture. And today's movie is... Mrs. Miniver. Mrs. Miniver. Alternate title, Mrs. Miniver, parentheses, the rose, not the person. The <laughs> rose... The rose, not the person. That's a good one. That's a good one. You ready for the posters? Yes. Yes? Yes, I'm ready to be disappointed. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but this is another year, another movie, another year of not great posters. It's a step up. What yeah. is the... So, I found two posters. One... The one on the, that I have on the left is the theatrical release poster, and then the other one is just a different, uh, a different version of the the original poster. The actors are taking up a large portion of the real estate, but there's more going on. I feel in this poster than a lot of the others we've seen. It's not just heads. Yeah. You've got their whole bodies. You've got. Oh, that's the. That's the scene of the ceiling at the very end of the movie. They're spoiling the whole thing. Yeah, they're spoiling the uh, the accident on their house. That's in the church, I That's think. That's in the church? The very last scene is the the hole in the roof of the church and the planes flying by it. So they both the posters have that. I guess that's the most iconic scene from the movie. Yeah. See, on the first poster, yeah, I could see the uh, I could see uh, the planes because they're in black and white. But in the second one, that's in color, you see them a little bit less. Yeah. Voted but... the greatest movie ever made, says the second one. Uh, by who? <laughs> when did this happen? Where was the vote? <laughs> I don't I don't remember casting my ballot. This seems like uh, bullshit to yeah. me. Yeah. And otherwise, like uh, most of the poster is just taken by the. Uh, names of the actors and some, you know, other information about the uh, about the cast and crew. And but. the title of the movie in a font you would expect to see on a box of animal crackers. A box of animal crackers, but also weirdly, it reminded me of the font that you often see on the uh, wanted posters. I can see it in a lot of movies. Or like a circus poster. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. Red with uh, a black uh, shade, or what you would what would you call it, like a outline. Outline, yes. Yeah. And apparently, we are learning now, or I am learning now, that the main female lead was supposed to be a redhead. I had no idea. Well, yeah, because it was in black and white, so we didn't know. Yep. Character? Not bad. Yeah, characters yeah. and actors. Yeah, not not as bad as the others. Has a a smidgen of character, but. Yeah. We're getting there, but we need some more. <laughs> All right, characters and actors. We have Greer Garson. Greer. Greer. I've never heard that first name before. No, they looked at their darling precious child and said Greer. <laughs> <laughs> Greer Garson, who is the titular character, Mrs. K. Miniver. We have Walter Pigeon as her husband, uh, Clem Miniver. He was Mr. Griffith. Or Gruffid <laughs> in or our last movie. Yep, back-to-back appearances by Walter Pigeon. Yeah, we have Richard Ney as their oldest son, Vin Miniver, who I could swear was called Vincent at some point in the in the movie. I but never heard it. 
well, I must have hallucinated. We have Christopher Severn as their young son, Toby Miniver. Claire Sanders as their daughter, Junie, Judy uh, Miniver, although she doesn't have much of a... I think she speaks twice yeah, in the entire movie. Yeah, she speaks twice. <laughs> yeah. She's mostly just a, a background prop. Yeah. We have Teresa Wright as Vin's wife. Uh, Carol Belden. We have Dame May Witty as her grandmother. She's Lady Belden. Henry Travers as Mr. Ballard. He's the train conductor and uh, Rose enthusiast. I refer to him in my synopsis as the station master. Station master, yes. He was station master and bell ringer. All right. And then Helmut Dentine, or Dentine, uh, he plays the German flyer. Oh, they actually got a German for the role? I don't, it sounds, his name sounds German. I don't know if he was actually German. That's interesting, getting an actual German actor during the war years. Yeah, mm. that was, yeah, unusual. Someone willing to be a traitor. <laughs> There's somebody who might have deserted <laughs> not to be a soldier. Yeah, he just wandered onto set one day. <laughs> yeah. All right, the information about the movie. It is based on a novel of the same title, written by Jan Strother. Got right to it. Because it's a movie about the war that happens while the war is still going. So yeah. just immediately started writing about it. Yeah. It was directed by William Wyler, who was supposed to be the director of the previous movie we watched, How Green Was My, My Valley, before he was replaced. I'm kind of glad he wasn't after seeing the pacing of this movie. Yeah. Two, yeah, two movies back to back with his pacing would have probably have been... Oof. Oof. It was produced by MGM and distributed by Lowe's Incorporated. The premiere occurred on June 4th, 1942 at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. And the countrywide release date was uh, a little later on July 22nd, 1942. The running time is 133 minutes and the budget at the time was $1.34 1. and it made $8.9 at the box office. Mm, those patriotism numbers. Mm, exactly. Well, this is leads uh, into my first fun fact. It was the highest grossing movie of that year, and it was the first uh, film that centered around World War II. The really. first drop in a flood. Yep. The movie, I'm going to kind of give you half of a fact here because I want to keep some for during the synopsis, but uh, the movie was already in pre-production in the fall of 1940 when the U.S. hadn't entered World War II yet, mm-hmm. but after the attack on Pearl Harbor, they decided to rewrite some of the scenes to reflect the pro-British and anti-German mentalities that were uh, rising in the U.S., no, I'll give you the the other half of that fact when we're going uh, over the when we the get plot. to the, yes the appropriate scene yes I'll tell you more about an example of a scene that was rewritten. Um, the final sermon at the end of the movie was uh, finalized. It was rewritten and rewritten constantly, and it was finalized the night before it was shot. And the Wikipedia entry. 
about the film informs us that, quote, the speech made such an impact that it was used in essence by President Roosevelt as a morale builder and part of it was the basis for leaflets printed in various languages and dropped over enemy and occupied territory. No, no. Roosevelt ordered the film rushed to the theaters for propaganda purposes, and the sermon dialogue was reprinted in Time and Look magazines, end quote. I mean, I knew the film was propaganda from watching yeah. it, but the fact that it's officially government-branded propaganda... Oofa doofa. I mean, you will make it to to the end of the synopsis and and say more about what happens also at the end of that movie. So yeah, it's definitely government branded. There were some notable reactions to the propaganda elements in the movie. The first of those reactions was written by uh, Joseph Goebbels, who was then the minister of Nazi propaganda. From one propaganda to another. (laughs) Yeah, from one to another. And he wrote that, quote, Mrs. Miniver shows the destiny of a family during the current war and its refined, powerful, propagandistic tendency has up to now only been dreamed of. There is not a single angry word spoken against Germany. uh, Nevertheless, the anti-German tendency is perfectly accomplished. (laughs) As a practitioner of this craft, I uh, nod in respect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do not agree, but I respect the craftsmanship, he says. Yeah. Uh, the movie was nominated for 12 Academy Awards, including Best Actor for Walter Pigeon, Best Supporting Actor for Henry Travers, Best Supporting Actress, where both May Whitty and Teresa Wright were nominated. Best Film Editing, Best Sound Recording, and Best Special Effect. It won six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, or what was uh, then called Outstanding Motion Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Greer Garson, Best Supporting Actress for Teresa Wright, Best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography in Black and White. Uh, The other nominated movies in the Best Picture category were... 49th Parallel, King's Row, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Pied Piper, Pied Piper, Pied Piper, The Pride of the Yankees, Random Harvest, Talk of the Town, Wake Island, and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Which one sounds the worst? Maybe. I uh, think. Pied Piper? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Pied Piper. Yeah. I don't know what it... The Pied Piper I have would, no idea what it would be about. It's a, a fairy tale about a, a man who plays a flute in... I think the flute either commands rats or he steals children. That must be based on a novel, too. I feel like I've, I've read a novel that was, that was like that. You wouldn't be surprised. Most of the movies we watch have been based off novels. Yeah. I think the talk of the town or Yankee Doodle Dandy sound absolutely rancid. I love just the, the sound of Yankee Doodle Dandy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's it. That's about it for fun facts. For now. For now. Till we get to the relevant scenes. Yes. Are we ready for the plot then? I'm ready. Alrighty. We open with uh, scrolling text. 
This story of an average English middle-class family begins with the summer of 1939, and we're not even 10 seconds into this movie, and I've got to call a timeout. Average middle-class family. These motherfuckers have a two-story house. It's huge. Huge mansion. At minimum, three servants. Yes. Two cars, a boat, a house right next to a river, a dock that goes right up to the house. (laughs) Yeah, this is not average middle class. Or either that or we have vastly... The concept of middle class has changed drastically in the intervening time period. I think I think it's the latter, honestly. I think the, the concept of middle class has uh, widely changed because, with inflation and, and all that. Yes, by, because by today's standards, these people are rich as fuck. Yes. All right. When the sun shone down on a happy, careless people who worked and played, reared their children, and tended their gardens in that happy, easy-going England that was so soon to be fighting desperately for her way of life and for life itself. And second time out, <laughs> didn't cavalcade? Yeah, this is uh, that's what I was going to say. Like, this is not the first movie that we see uh, about about that. That this is not the first movie that we see about an an English family in the middle of war. Yeah, did didn't Cavalcade show us that the lead up to World War Two was also miserable and chaotic and everything was falling apart? Yeah. And here we are rewriting history. Yep. They can't even. They don't even remember the their their own movies that they nominated. This is Kangaroo Court. <laughs> And the opening minutes of the film see the titular Miss Miniver making her way through town to buy a hat. And we spend, what, five minutes where she just, she gets on a bus and then, oh, the bus is going in the wrong direction. And then she goes to the store and says, oh, I don't see the hat on display. Did did somebody buy it? No, we were just hiding it to to pull a prank on you. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Just setting up the fact that every scene in this movie just goes on for 10 times longer than it should. I also given the amount of time and all the fuzz that's given to the buying of this hat, I expected that this hat would have a more prominent role in this, this movie. This hat matters not at all. Yep. Zero relevance to the plot. Once the hat is acquired, she gets on a train and makes small talk with the town preacher seated opposite her. I had to I didn't know what this thing was at first because the door to it just opens into the train car. Mm-hmm. Like, it it feels more like a, a small streetcar or trolley where you just open the yeah. door and you are you walk in and you're on your seat. It doesn't feel like a train, but... No, and it's also weird because it, it feels like individual cars. Like, you could sit maybe six people in, in those things, but they're not like a, a tramway where you wouldn't get on and then sit as you would on a bus it just it feels like individual cars yeah i'm used to there being you know a like a communal door on a train where you enter and then walk down a hallway for a bit but this the door is like right next to the seats and it's almost yeah. like a, a bar room door you know that swings outward it's, that yeah. you'd see in the old west it's weird it's a weird train i don't like it she asks if he thinks there's really going to be trouble, and re- he responds, Here it comes now, at which point the door to the train opens and the mandatory snobby pearl clutcher, Lady Belden, enters. We have to have this archetype in every single movie we watch. Yeah. It is uh, Mrs. Kirby. It's the school marm from... Uh, Cimarron. Cimarron. It's... 
every movie we've had has had yeah. one of these these stuffy old uh, women in them. And this one is no exception. She sits down and complains that she spent all day being shoved around by middle class females. That's what she said. Mm-hmm. Females. Uh, going after things they can't afford. I mean, Kiri, this could have been worse. She could have she could have used uh, worse than middle class females. Yeah, there's just something about referring to women as females that's always yeah, it always just rubs me the wrong way. Uh, feels like a very basement dweller neckbeard thing to do. Trying to be better than their betters, all mink and no manners, she says. <laughs> No wonder the Germans are arming up. Sometime later, Mrs. Miniver exits the train at her destination and is stopped on her way out by the station master. Oh, hold on. When Mrs. When Lady Belton says that, Mrs. Miniver turns to her and she's like, Oh, that means me! <laughs> Which I expected it to be a little more uncomfortable than that, but it's it was just the, the right amount of sass, I think, coming from Mrs. Miniver. Yeah, Mrs. Miniver is always very accepting and playful about the abuse abuse that gets dissed out from Lady Belden. Yeah. I think she remains always kind of very proper. Yeah, she just laughs and shrugs it off. Rolls right off her back. She's stopped on her way out of the station by the station master, who has something he wants to show her. That something is a rose he's grown himself. His masterpiece. All it needs is a name. And if it's okay with her, he'd like to call it the Mrs. Miniver. Because she's always nice and stops to chat with him when she uses the train. This is another scene that goes on for way too long where you can't ever just get to the point of a scene in this movie. Mm-hmm. You have to take the most roundabout way to it where he like he says a poem about the rose. And yes. then they talk about the proper technique to grow a rose. And then he goes, oh, and then the only thing it lacks is a name. If only I had a name for it. And like... Just tell, just tell her you want to ro- name the rose after. Her. Just say it. Just say it. You don't have to. You don't have to spend fifteen minutes talking around to this and bemoan the fact that you don't have a name and then recite a fucking poem about roses. And oh my god, her reaction is also a little bit uh, blown out of proportion to me. Like we get uh, a close up of her face looking at the rose and and she's completely amazed at the beauty of this rose which is to me an average rose but yeah it doesn't look any different from any other rose yeah also you see this rose multiple times for the movie and it's a different rose every time so of course (laughs) of course and the the scene ends very awkwardly where she turns to leave and then just pauses at the door and goes i think it's very wonderful to have flowers named after you (laughs) goodbye and (laughs) And the, the the whole scene started a little bit, it was a little bit creepy also to me at the beginning because when he invites her to come into his office and look at the rose, he is definitely uh, taken with her, if not really enamored with her. He definitely has a crush on her. Yeah, Mrs. he Miniver. seems like he has a crush on her and she's and oblivious he, to it. She's oblivious to it and he keeps just staring at her. I expected this to be a creepier than it was. He has like a schoolboy crush, which is creepy because he's a good, what, 30 years older than her? 30, 40? I would expect that, yeah. At least at least 30. Yeah. Too, too old to be of relevance, so... 
She makes it back home and across the street, uh, though unnoticed by Mrs. Miniver, her husband Clem is taking a new car out for a test drive, though he's not moving it. It's just like sitting across the street and the salesman is in the car. He tells the salesman he likes it, but it's more than he can afford, uh, but he buys it anyway and tells the salesman to bring it back later and to not tell his wife how much it costs. And this is the most reluctant car salesman I've ever seen because... Uh, he says he can't afford it, and, and the salesman says, oh, well, we've got plenty of other cheaper things, and he said, no, I'll take it anyway. And the salesman, you sure? I don't, I don't we got cheaper stuff. <laughs> but he pushes him into it. Uh, he enters the house then and says he's too busy to listen to his daughter's piano song. She's being taught by a teacher, and the teacher <laughs> even implores him, like, it would mean so much to your daughter if you just took five seconds. Nope, too busy. <laughs> and he walks away. No can do. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, and then passes uh, by his son Toby, who is hurrying outside with the cat because the cat is about to throw up. Toby is uh, the MVP of this movie because oh, for sure, oh, he brings all the uh, comedic relief. Everyone else in this movie is so stuffy and bland and awkward, and this child is just a delightful uh, breath of chaos in this whole thing. He's just running down the stairs holding the cat. Goes, I can't. No, it's about to throw up. I gotta go. <laughs> Yeah, and he has some of the the best interactions with other people. Has no concept of personal space or just human proper human interaction and uh, asking the the right or the wrong question at the at the wrong moment. Yeah, I've I've made note of all his little uh, faux pas when they appear. So I look forward to them upstairs. Kay gossips on the phone with a friend, telling her she hasn't told Clem about the hat yet. Can't just drop a thing like that on a man, you know? Yeah, because apparently that hat is expensive as hell. Even though it's tiny. It's, yeah, like, what, three, four inches across? Yeah. Little, like, veil at the back of it. It's supposed to be stylish. It's not practical in any sense of the word. Uh, Then there's a... Completely pointless scene of Kay eating with the children, and then her and Clem have their own dinner together. This is the the pointless scene of her eating with the children is where Toby goes. He just asks about what phases are, and am I going through a phase? There's, there is so much fluff in this movie. There is yeah. so many just completely pointless, time-wasting scenes that aren't relevant to anything. It could have been 30 minutes shorter if they cut all the oh, fluff. Oh, definitely. And this is... It's not a short movie. It's two hours and 13 minutes. But this is, by about a page, the shortest synopsis I've ever written. Because there's so much stuff where it's just like, this doesn't matter. I don't don't need to say anything about this. It's not relevant. It's okay. Just, it's just pointless. And then we move from the pointless dinner on to Kay and Clem having their own dinner together. Insinuating that she has like a separate meal with the children. Despite the fact that later in the movie they all eat dinner together. I didn't see her eat with the children the i didn't see if she had a plate or if she was just there to help the children eat but then in later scenes the children always eat with them together so i don't whatever whatever (laughs) clem starts talking about how worn the tires are on their car how dangerously slow it is and Kay asks uh, what he's done is he's clearly trying to build up to the fact that they need to get a new car. Oh, he's, yeah, he's definitely acting as a salesman in this scene. Because he has already bought a new car. Uh, In response, he leads her outside and they go for a ride in a new car, which is another completely pointless scene. They just show them in the car for uh, like 10 seconds and then they're back inside. Uh, 
Then they're in their bedroom with Clem monologuing about how it's okay to be extravagant once in a while. Money is for spending, after all. Uh, and so Kay gets up and shows him the hat. He likes it and tells her she's even more beautiful than when he married her. Uh, do you think that's possible, he asks. I don't see why not, mm -hmm. she replies. They turn off the lights and get in their respective beds because they have separate beds. Yeah, which... It's not a shocker, but it also, if you're a married couple, why not sleep in the same bed? Because of uh, film sensor standards at the time? Yeah, they could still be in the same bed and, you know, not be close. Like, they could have a king bed and each be in, uh, you know, on their side of the bed. Just have a big dividing wall with the American uh, Movie Institute logo on it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Hayes Code trademark just stamped yeah. on the thing. Uh, and Mrs. Miniver tells her husband that she thinks they're very lucky people because they have each other and money and the kids and money. <laughs> I had a rose named after me today, she says. You left the closet light on tonight, is Clem's reply. <laughs> yeah, that means absolutely nothing to him. Yep. And then, of course, uh, we have to sit and watch Mrs. Miniver slowly get up out of bed, walk to the closet, turn the light off, come back to bed, and get in. And then stare at the hat that she left on her bedpost. Yeah, and then stare at the hat she left on her bedpost because there is no piece of minutia too small for this film not to... We even, when Clem enters the house, he like stops... Uh, on the the landing of their stairs because mm -hmm. there's a there's a little landing halfway up that has a, a clock on it a grandfather clock and he just stops and it shows him like wind the clock like and it's not even the only time in the movie you see someone wind the clock. Yeah, I think he winds the clock to um, make it to alleviate the fact that he was late. He was fifteen minutes late. Mm -hmm. And then at another point in in the movie, she brings the clock fifteen minutes forward. So she just fixing what yeah, he did. She's fixing what it he was did. supposed to but be. But that was like way later. That was almost like a half hour later in the yeah, movie. Yeah, if that's supposed to be a gag, it, that's a really subtle gag. Next scene is the family picking up their final member from the train station, Vin, who's back from Oxford. And this was a shock because Mrs. Miniver looks to be in her early 30s and Vin is in college. Yeah, so he's at least 18, 19. He's 19. 19. And yeah, she looks like she's in her early 30s. It was fine when it was just the two young children, but as soon as Vin shows up, oh, she is not the appropriate age for this role. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely looks like she could be in her like late 20s to early 30s, but her character should be at least like closer to 40. Yeah, it's fine for the husband because he's got that ageless, could be anywhere between 30 and mid-60s. You know, <laughs> not mid-60s. Holly, leading Hollywood man look where, yeah, he's that nebulous, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would put him at least at like mid-40s. Where they all just, every dad archetype in that time period is just somewhere between 40 and 50. Uh, on the drive home, uh, Vin tells everyone that Oxford taught him how little he really knows, and he wants to devote his life to learning, social consciousness, the good of his fellow man, and blah 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 blah. He's an insufferable uh, intellectual now. He, he sounds like an idealist, and just when you you hear him talk, he's like, oh, I want to know everything about the world, and I want to know everything about my, my uh, fellow men, and all that. I was like, 
he oh, has... Oh, poor you. He, Clearly you haven't learned anything. His eyes have been opened to the, to the corruption and wrong of the worlds, and he's going to uh, correct them by preaching his gospel to everyone. Yeah. It, and doing absolutely nothing of value. Yeah, it's not not at all about how uh, learned and wise uh, he is. No, he's actually trying to help people. <clears throat> Once they get home, the three adults have lunch in the garden while Vin preaches some more about how corrupt society is. He has a particular bone with the class system and uh, feudalism mm -hmm. and whatnot. And uh, uh, yeah, the lower class is being oppressed, he says as he sits in his mansion in his suit. Then the maid comes out and announces they have a visitor, who turns out to be Carol, the granddaughter of Lady Belden, that old busybody in the train. She's there to ask a favor. The station master is planning to enter his rose, the Miss Minerva, in the annual flower competition. Miss Minerva. Minerva, yeah, I always want to say Minerva. <laughs> I have to fight it every single time. So there's going to be there's gonna be a few of those battles I lose. Uh, he's pl in planning to enter his rose into the annual flower competition, which Lady Belden has won for the past 30 years. Perhaps they could persuade uh, him not to do this. Because they're, the implication is to be they're fully willing to rig the thing in her favor, but they'd rather just... It would be simpler if he just didn't enter in the first place. Yeah, it also sounds like she's the only person who ever enters that contest every year, so of course she's the only winner. She's been the only winner for 30 years. Yeah, it means so much to her. Vin is incensed when he hears this. It's the feudal system at work, with the lower class not even being allowed to compete with their social superiors, he says. Vin's parents try to apologize on his behalf, but he tells them not to. He means every word he says. <laughs> Glad to hear it, says Carol. But are you doing anything about it? Huh? Says Vin. Carol says she spent her last summer helping people in the slums of London, and she knows how comfortable it is to curl up with a big book full of fancy words and pretend like you're going to save the universe. But you're not, you know. A bit of action is required every now and then. If action is what your class is asking for, says Vin, rising from his seat, then maybe you'll get it one of these days. Not from the talkers. Carol calmly replies as Vin storms off. I really like that interaction because the uh, the two of us, when we were watching the movie, were, you know, already not complaining, but just making remarks about how he's a good talker, but not really a, an action person. Uh, and she was exactly expressing our thoughts towards him. Like, yeah. Yeah, I liked how she immediately called his bluff. Yeah, she was still, you know, she was respectful. She wasn't uh, sassy or anything. She was just, yeah, calling his bluff and just calling him out for being uh, a sweet doctor and an intellectual and not somebody who's actually going to change anything. Yeah, you're all talk and no action. It's all it's all performative. Yeah. She uh, bursts his balloon in a, in a satisfying way. The the feminist in me also very much uh, appreciated the fact that this calling out came from uh, a female character. And it puts him in his place. Yeah. His parents uh, apologize again, but Carol says there's no need. She realized how silly her request was as soon as she started saying it, and Vin is handsome, so he gets a pass. <laughs> yeah, she comments about how she... He's really quite nice, isn't he? And that's clearly a coded language because both the parents immediately perk up. Oh, you like him, huh? Yeah. She says that she'll see them at the dance tonight and leaves. 
A quick scene of the station master and an unnamed man pulling on ropes to ring a bell while they talk about the Rose controversy, and then we're at the dance because he is station master and bell ringer. Yep. And he shows them a couple times ringing the bell. It's these giant ropes that take up one hand each, and they're so big, and the bell they're ringing is so massive that they have to stand on these platforms that have hoops for their feet so they don't yeah. get li- lifted up off the ground. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that. I hadn't noticed the hoops. Yeah. They have to stick their their feet into them, and it's just it's this conversation about uh oh you should know your place and not enter the competition and uh, well, well why shouldn't I enter it roses are my hobby and yeah. yeah that kind of thing. At the dance, Kay and Clem are sitting at a table watching the dancing, and Carol comes over and says she's been looking for Vin. Uh, she's informed that he didn't come because, as Clem puts it, he's suffering from an acute case of maturity. <laughs> A servant then approaches and hands Carol a note, which turns out to be from Vin, requesting that she meet him on the boat landing, and Carol departs immediately, and she walks out to the boat landing, and Vin is striking this ridiculous... It's It's like uh, the pose that the pirate is taking on the Captain Morgan... That's the the brand of alcohol, right? Yes, the, yes, yes, yes. The, yeah, where he's just got one leg up on a barrel. He's doing that exact same pose where he's trying so hard to look manly and mysterious and like oh you caught me right in the middle of this serious contemplation yeah exactly he's looking in the distance he's just just... staring forlornly out to sea it's it's ridiculous (laughs) i laughed i laughed out loud (laughs) when they came on screen uh, at the boat landing, Vin apologizes for being a jerk and so does carol he he doesn't usually get that flustered uh, she tries to head back inside, but Vin tells her to wait. He has so much more he wants to t- tell her about himself. I have so much more narcissism to unload on you. Uh, how about we just go dance instead, says Carol. I don't know, says Vin. Is this really the time for frivolity? To which Carol replies, is it really the time to lose our sense of humor? And Vin concedes. After some good dancing, they're back outside again, and Vin tells her that she used to he used to see her ride by on her pony when they were children. The pony was fat, and so was she. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, this is not exactly the way to win a woman's heart. She had legs like overstuffed sausages, he yeah. says. Oh, I forgot that he said that. Yeah, it was very reminiscent of a Broadway melody in the beginning when Eddie... Eddie comes in and tells Fanny about how, oh, you used to be hideous, but now you're beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, you used to be a little hideous child. What a charmer. (laughs) Legs like sausages. Arms like jerked chicken. A face like ground beef. (laughs) How could I resist? Uh, Can he see her again tomorrow, he asks. Unfortunately, she's heading to Scotland tomorrow for months, but he can write her if he wants. And they go back for more dancing. Another quick scene in the bell tower. If there's a war, there'll be no roses, is the conversation this time. To which the station master replies, That's like saying there'll be no England. There will always be roses. And roses is one of the symbols in England. It's at least the symbol for their rugby team. Yep, the War of the Roses. I remember. Uh, And then we're on to church. Vin and family sit on the left side of the aisle as Lady Belden and Carol enter and sit on the right side in a reserved pew. I have never seen... She has her own box seat. Yeah, it has her family name on it. Yeah, I have... I've certainly seen seats reserved at weddings and funerals for immediate family, but I have never seen just a dedicated pew for the, the local 
royalty. Uh, you spent more time in church than I have, so I, I can't say that I, I've had that experience. Yeah, and this is a proper European church, so made of stone with high ceilings and stained glass windows. Mm -hmm. Proper capital C church, not the uh, shitty little sheds we have in America. <laughs> As the congregation stands and sings, Vin leans forward to get a better look at Carol, squishing Toby against the pew who elbows him in the gut. Because Toby's just standing in front of him and he just, Vin leans forward and just smashes him into the, the pew in front of them. Yeah. Uh, Vin catches Carol's eye and they smile and uh, bat their lashes at each other. The singing ends and the preacher enters the pulpit and informs the congregation that the country has entered the war and that church is canceled because they probably have other more important stuff to do now. <laughs> uh, God can wait. We got Germans to murder. I appreciated that, that, you know, that he didn't try to give them a, a lengthy sermon. It's just like, go home. You're not needed here. Yeah. We should have wars more often, thinks at least half the crowd. <laughs> It's certainly what I'd be thinking if it got me out of church. They sing again, and then as everyone makes their way out, Toby loudly asks, Are we going to get bombed? <laughs> yeah. And his parents try and uh, shush him, and he just repeats it even louder. Yeah. Are we going to die? How dead are we going to be? How many women and children? <laughs> Vin and Carol smile at each other as they pass at the exit, uh, but Carol can't stay to talk. She very quickly uh, excuses herself and walks away as yeah. if uh, something is amiss. <laughs> Upon returning home, the family is told by a hysterical middle-aged maid that the husband of the younger maid has been drafted. That's what the scene was about. I discovered upon rewatching the synopsis because the first time we watched the scene, I could not make heads or tails of what this lady was saying. I... I had understood that that was what's going on, but I couldn't tell everything that they were uh, that they were saying. She honestly. has such a thick British accent, and she's so hysterical. She's that's what happened, Mum. Mm. Like okay, uh, transition to a scene of the family eating dinner together while being uh, waited on by that younger maid the older one was talking about who is softly weeping as she serves them their plates. Yeah. She's just shuffling around the table, just uh, crying softly. Her husband comes in to say goodbye before he heads out for his train, and Clem offers him a drink. And yeah, he her offers her offers him a, like a, to take a, a glass of brandy. And then his wife is so upset that that glass of brandy gets offered to her, and then uh, uh, he the male servant gets his own second glass of brandy yeah. and they try and cheer the maid up or like, Oh, he's, he's not going to be anywhere near the front lines. It'll be fine. And you no, know, he said he's going to get his hands on the Germans himself. And, mm. and he comes in and they have this uh, teary goodbye. He toasts to the war and says, may we all meet on the front lines. Not me says Vin. I prefer the air force. And the male servant's name is Horace. So Horace takes his leave, and he promises to write, even though he's not so good with the letters and such. I also found that it was a weird thing to toast to. Like, may we all meet on the front lines? Like, who the heck is happy about going to war? I, I understand that there are enemies to defeat. I understand that you want to, um, I don't know, act and honor your country and all that. But that's, I don't know. Toast to your 
hopefully your future victory or something, but not toast you. Maybe we all meet on the front line. No. And it's a very, very similar attitude to the the schoolboys in the beginning of All Quiet on the Western Front, where mm. yeah, war is going to be a fun adventure, and uh, let's go do our duty and be heroes. That is yeah. clearly his attitude. And he says he's not good at writing letters, and Toby helpfully suggests that he write letters in his own blood and pulls his finger across his neck. Yes! Oh my god. That child. He's the best. He is. Wanting to know about uh, how, how many corpses there are going to be and suggesting that you write letters in blood. and <laughs> He is all in on the, the death and dismemberment. This child is, is possessed. <laughs> and I am down for it. Vin then leaves to go visit Carol... Uh, and silence fills the room. Kay finally breaks it by asking, he's a little young for the Air Force, isn't he? A bit more silence, and Clem agrees that he is, in fact, young. And uh, then, he's over 18, so... Yep. Old enough to get in the meat grinder. Yep. And, and there's no conversation beyond that. She just says, he's a little young, isn't he? And after a few seconds, Clem goes, yeah, he's young. And then we just fade to the next scene. Mm-hmm. From there, we follow Vin... To Lady Belden's mansion. Inside, he is greeted by Carol, who thanks him for writing all those letters to her while she was away. Vin is surprised that she got them, since she never applied, and she tells him it's because she didn't know how to respond. He's such a crazy boy, she didn't think his infatuation with her would last. It's all so sudden, and she hardly knows him. Vin says they can fix that if they just hang out more often, and Carol agrees. He says he's very glad she's back, and she says she is too, and they smile and make googly eyes at each other. Uh, as much as I bash on this movie, I think they did a, a good job of uh, simulating young, awkward love yeah. and infatuation where they they clearly both like each other but also aren't clear how to proceed in the thing, and so they kind of stumbled forward awkwardly through it. Yeah, it's also very realistic and uh, aware of the fact that they haven't spent that much time together. Like when she says, I didn't know how to, to respond. Like I've only met you twice and you were writing me those crazy letters. Uh, you know, clearly hinting at the fact that he was probably declaring his love uh, to her in his letters. Like, yeah, no shit. She doesn't know how to answer. You, didn't, I wouldn't know how to answer to, to such letters from somebody I've, I've talked to like twice. It's fast even for 1940s standards. Uh, Vin then asks if it would be going too far if... And he doesn't even finish his sentence, and Carol replies, it's all right, and then they kiss. Yeah, which was very cute. Uh, The romance is cut short, however, as Lady Belden swoops into the room and launches into a tirade about tramp roses grown in train station yards and the lower class not knowing their place. She uh, gets off on that because uh, she's never met met Vin before, and he's introduced as Vin uh, Miniver, and Miniver, Miniver! That's the name of that awful rose! And then she just goes off. Lower class not knowing their place, and the Beldens don't take orders, they give them, goddammit. She says as she stands in front of this enormous uh, ornate fireplace. Uh, she's mercifully interrupted by an air siren, a- air raid siren, and Vin tells her and the servants to get in the cellar while he calls his parents, and she's incensed by this too. Like, you don't give orders on that! And tries to fight, and then I think... Uh, Carol shushes her and also one of the butlers is like you really should get in the yeah. cell if you don't want to get blown all to hell so she the- says something about having to go into the cellar also like something uh, uh, in the something in the lines of like oh cellars for the servants or something like that she 
clearly it's the the cellar the place of the cellar also reflects where um the uh, i'm having a hard time finding my words reflects um, your station in life yeah your station in life the, like it, it's it's below her usual standards that usually how it does operate in physical space uh, people of higher class literally need to be higher that's why the, they build their castles on hills and stuff so they can look down on everyone so Vin goes out to call his parents, and Clem answers on the other end and calmly says he'll see Vin when the excitement is over. And then that's how we transition back to the, the family at, at their house. Yeah. Uh, as he hangs up, there's a knock on the door, which turns out to be a volunteer from the neighborhood, come to tell Clem that there's a light visible in one of the basement windows. They go down together and cover the window with a blanket while Kay and the children watch, and the servants are there in the cellar with them too. The volunteer informs Clem that it would usually be a fine of 40 pounds for a, a light being owned because uh, the, the planes flying over can see them from the sky and they present bombing targets. But he'll let him off uh, with a warning this time because they know each other and then uh, he immediately launches into a sales pitch about emergency canned goods. He just like whips out a pad and is like, so how much can I put you down for? Yeah. You'll need some tin goods, maybe some sardines or some sausages. Yeah, he was like, oh, you've got space in here. You could, you could stock up on canned goods. Yep. Never pass up an opportunity to make a buck, even in a crisis. The siren ends in the middle of the sales pitch and Toby asks if the war is over. No, darling, this is just the first day, says Kay. Oh, good, says the devil child. <laughs> I thought for a second the, the suffering was over. Eight months later, in a local bar, the patrons gather around a radio and listen to German propaganda about how the war is going and uh, making fun of the announcements. It's this man with a, a pronounced German accent talking about how... Uh, uh, the war is so new, but things are already going so poorly for Britain, and uh, the Third Reich is rising, and you still have time to surrender and, uh, you know, join the right side of history. And then yeah. they're just laughing and uh, blowing farts at it, and then they eventually turn it off. They gossip about the German pilot that crashed in the area and is supposedly hiding in the woods, and what he could be eating to stay alive. Klim then enters the bar, leading a group of men who are out looking for the German pilot. They didn't find him, but it's only a matter of time. Vin then appears, to the surprise of his father, and tells him he graduated pilot training early because the program is being accelerated due to the war. He scored an 85 on the test and was awarded a week's leave because of it. He's also being stationed at a nearby base, so he'll be able to visit home regularly. The father and son duo return home and find a Kay and Carol waiting for them at the top of the stairs. Vin runs up to greet them, and they all gush about how great it is to see him, how good he looks in his uniform, and how nice it is that he'll be stationed nearby, yada, yada, yada. This might be the first time he kisses his mom on the mouth. I believe so, yeah. Because yeah, there's some, there's some, your old friend, uh, familiar smooching, you thought we'd uh, escaped it. I thought, yeah, I thought that this was over, but clearly not. Mm. Just, there's just something about, you don't kiss your parents on the mouth. A, I've never kissed my parents on the mouth. So that, they do that's, back then. Yeah, well, that's back then. But I don't know. You don't linger. Even if that's what you do, you don't linger into the kiss the same way you do with your significant other. Well, I have my own fun fact. What is it? Which is the actress that played Kay and the actress who played Vin, her son, actually got married in real life. What? Yeah. I don't know if they were married bef while this movie was taking place, but at some point they were married, so that might be why he lingered. What? 
it. Yep. Husband and wife. Which, yeah, makes it even weirder that he's playing her son. Gross. Yep. Uh, Vin also tells them that he learned a trick from a fellow pilot about how to make a certain noise with his engine so his family will know it's him when he mm. when he's flying by. I yeah, I missed that the first time we watched it too. Yeah. This is where he tells them that he learned how to make like his engine stutter. I was wondering uh, when he flies over the house and she said, "Oh, it's Vin, it's Vin." I was like, "How the heck do you know that?" Then Vin's parents both make excuses to leave so Carol and Vin can be alone uh, so they can have a, a makeout session. At dinner that night, Carol has joined the family at the table, and Toby loudly inquires if Vin is going to marry her. Kay tries to shush him, which makes him ask even louder. It's the same thing as the church. Yeah, and Vin is sitting, like, right across him uh, at the dinner table, and he's not asking Vin directly. He's asking his mom, like, is Vin going to marry Carol? Is Vin going to marry Carol? Yeah. You guys gonna get married or what? What's the deal? You gonna put a ring on it? You just playing around? (laughs) What's going on here? <laughs> Shitter, get off the pot, says Toby. Honestly, if this movie was made today, I would not be surprised if Toby said, are you gonna, going to put a ring on it? You know. Vin tells him that he hasn't had the courage to ask, and Carol suggests that Toby ask her if she's going to marry Vin. Toby does, and she replies that she will if he asks. Vin gets up out of his chair and says he was going to wait for a more romantic moment, but uh, Toby fucked up any chance of that, so will she marry him? <laughs> She will! Everyone hugs and celebrates, and Toby bangs on the table with his silverware. Then the phone rings, and it turns out Vin's leave is being cut short, and he needs to be at the train station in 30 minutes. Vin heads upstairs to pack, Clem goes to get the car keys, and we get a shot of Kay and Carol uh, sitting right next to each other looking sad and anxious. Then uh, Vin comes back down and says his goodbyes, and Toby tells him to bring back a gun. (laughs) And at this point... I think we both felt that Vin was basically a walking uh, gravestone. I thought so. All this, yeah. I'm young and in love and have so much to live for. And, oh, my leave has been cut short. Hope yeah. nothing bad happens. Well, especially with the experience we've had with Cavalcade, uh, where both the sons die, I expected that this was headed this way. Yeah, it's not our first war movie, so we're familiar with the patterns and, and the tropes they operate under. And the tragedy and, yeah. Yeah, there's always going to be some kind of tragedy, and it's always going to be somebody young, because that's the the hell of war, so just waiting for the hammer to drop. That night in their bedroom, Kay and Clem talk about the the engagement a bit and then go to sleep. It's another one of those, like, pointlessly drawn out, like, oh, she's such a nice girl, don't you think? Yes, I do think. Oh, and they're going to be such a lovely couple, don't you think? Yes, I agree, dear. And also the, what do you think the old lady is going to say about this? Yeah. (laughs) Well, she has no right to have any problem being such a nice young man. Blah, 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 blah. And I die a little inside. Um, yeah, they talk a bit and then they go to sleep. Uh, and in the silence, Kay hears uh, planes flying by overhead. One of which is making a certain uh, stalling noise with its engine. It's Vin! Her and Clem rush to the window and watch the planes pass by the moon. Good luck, Vin, whispers Kay. Uh, later that night, the phone rings and Clem answers. Kay worriedly asks if it's about Vin, and Clem says no. It's the River Patrol calling him for an unspecified duty. It's like 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, somewhere around there. 
Clem heads down at, to the meeting point at the bar, where twenty or so men, some of which are drunk, are gathered, each asking the other if they know what's going on. Uh, the man in charge arrives and informs the men his orders were to gather every ship over thirty feet and to send them up the river. Uh, he doesn't know why. The men then head out, and we get several shots of dozens of boats heading up the river under the cover of darkness. These were neat shots. Nice that we could follow the the boats along the river and see more and more uh, boats just added uh, to that convoy. That was very nice. It gets to the point where it's absolutely stuffed from one bank to the other, to the point where they wouldn't. All it would take would be for one of them to just veer a few inches off a course, and it would just cause this massive pileup. Yeah, clogging the river, but they don't. When they get to the point where the river transitions into ocean, a battleship passes in front of them, uh, tells them all to kill their engines, and then announces through its speakers that they are being asked to go to Dunkirk and provide transport for the soldiers there that are trapped between the enemy and the sea. It's not a job free of danger, and anyone who wants to turn back should do so now. No one does. Though they only give them like five seconds yeah. to turn back now if you want to, and then, okay, no one did. It's like... They're in a crowd of boats. Like, if you want to leave, it's going to take a good, like, 20 minutes just to get yourself turned around. And this scene was also unintentionally funny to me because of the, the battleship passing in front. You don't see anyone talking. It's just this really loud announcement coming out of the ship. So it's like the ship itself is screaming at them yeah. <laughs> about how they have to go and save these people. What did you have to do, dear? Oh, well, we drove down the river for a few hours and then the battleship screamed at us. <laughs> so and no one uh, no one turns back and then uh, we transition to the next scene and five days later, we're told uh, Kay stands in the garden looking out at the river as gunfire and bombs go off in the distance. The station master walks by carrying a fishing pole and the two talk a bit about the war. He says the English have the war in the bag because Jesus is on their side and that Lady Belden is still having the rose competition in spite of the fighting. He says something about there uh, being no better book than the Bible for talking about deep feelings or something like that. Oh, I, I didn't catch that. Yeah, and because uh, Kay is clearly having deep feelings about the war. Mm. Uh, he heads on his way, and as Kay turns to go back in the house, she spots a pair of boots sticking out from under a bush. A pair of boots that are attached to a fugitive German pilot. Mm. His eyes are closed and he has a gun near his hand. Kay bends down and slowly reaches for the gun, and the pilot's eyes snap open. She runs for the house, but he catches up and enters the house with his gun drawn, and then we have the most laboriously drawn-out scene that I have potentially ever sat through. It goes on for so long. It is like 15 minutes. Yeah, there's not that much said. They don't move a, a lot around or just... No, yeah. it's her and the German pilot in the kitchen of the house. He has his gun drawn. There's no music through this whole thing. So it's mostly just silence and him pointing his gun at her and uh, demanding food to eat and things to drink and a coat to wear. But each one of these demands takes minutes in and of itself because yeah. he asks her for something to eat and she gives him some ham and then we just have to watch him eat it. And then he asks for some milk and she gives him the milk and we just have to sit there and watch him drink it. Yeah. Then he asks for a coat, and we have to sit there and watch her get the coat, and we have to sit there and watch him struggle to put the coat on because one of his arms is injured. 
All the while, he's pointing the gun, and keep, the camera keeps going back and forth between him and her being worried. And there, there's no tension in the scene. I didn't yeah. feel any. It's just the, the most tension is just on their faces, but there's nothing. Mr. Apart from him pointing the gun, there's nothing very threatening about him. No, it's slow, and it's awkward, and he dumps the milk all over himself when he drinks it, and then he puts the coat on awkwardly, and we have to just sit there watching him eat a block of cheese while holding a gun, and then... Uh, he, he gives this like awkward speech that about do- how they're going to... That doesn't happen until after she calls the police. That's right. Because he goes through all this crap that we have to watch, and he gets the coat, and then the, there's even this sequence that's supposed to be tense where the milkman arrives, mm-hmm. and it's oh, I guess it's always the milkman going to enter, and is he going to have to either shoot the milkman or get him involved in this mess and so that takes three minutes by itself of them just standing there listening to the milkman outside the door and then uh, after that happens he gets the coat we watch him awkwardly uh, shuffle into it and then he goes to leave again because he and he stuffs the the pockets of the coat with some more food and then he goes to leave but he collapses and just passes out in front of the door. And then she picks up the gun. Uh, the camera follows her out into the hallway. We get to listen to her whole phone call to the police. Then her going back into the kitchen and him waking up. Her telling him she's called the police. And giving him more stuff to eat. Uh, where he he moves over to the table at that point, And that's when he gives this whole uh, ridiculously cartoonish speech about how they killed 30,000 people in just two days. And now they're going to do it, do it here. And... He just turns into this cartoonish uh, mustache-twirling villain where he hasn't said anything up to that point. Yeah. And it's just, it becomes absurd, and that's when she slaps him. And, yeah. This and that's, is... uh, that's one, of the, one of the scenes that I was talking about earlier that got rewritten as uh, the U.S. entered the war. Um, so... After the U.S. entered the war, and they modified some of those scenes, rewrote them, reshot them, and that's uh, in the scene. In the original scene, there was no uh, physical altercation between the two characters, but in the rewritten scene, she ends up slapping the German soldier. And it's not even a good slap, because no. it misses the mark. She, like, hits him in the neck. And it's also not a strong swing, yeah, swing to begin with. So it's it's as awkward as the whole rest of the the scene before it. And that yeah, every scene in this movie goes on for too long and is just stuffed with too much minutia and superfluous detail. But man, this one takes the cake with just why are we watching this dude just eat blocks of cheese? <laughs> why do we need to spend fifteen minutes doing this? This movie gains nothing from this. Yeah. Like, I thought it was going to be a humanizing moment where she takes mm-hmm. in... Because he's clearly, like, the same age as her son, as Vin. Yeah. Around that age. So I thought it's going to be this, oh, they're just people too thing. And then... But then he launches into that tirade about how they genocided 13 people and, and you're going to be next. And we're going to do it in all your cities and the Reich will rise. And mm-hmm. it's just... It's just silly. Just oh, this isn't this isn't trying to comment on our shared humanity. Just this is just propaganda. Disappointing, 
disappointing and pointless. And then it ultimately ends with the police arriving and escorting him out. They don't ask how this happened. Or... Yeah, no questions are asked. They just Nothing. take him out. She gives them the gun. They're in and out in under 30 seconds yep. for this. And then she collapses into a chair in shock. And then the children in the the maids have been upstairs this entire time and as soon as the police leave toby enters the kitchen and walks over and is like who was here mommy who was here who was it and she's too overwhelmed to reply and is clearly about to break down even from just the the light questioning from toby but then she hears the engine of a boat arrive and uh is overjoyed to see that clem is back yep so the the whole matter is uh, forgotten by toby because dad's back the family greets him at the dock, and he asks if there's any news of Vin. There isn't. And then we see him upstairs collapsing into bed and instantly falling asleep. Kay hears planes uh, overhead, and after a few tense moments, one makes the special noise, and Kay leans out the window and yells, It's Vin! It's Vin! with a huge smile on her face. Ten hours later, Clem wakes up and tells Kay what a great adventure he had. Wouldn't have missed it for the world. He's almost sorry for Kay, having a nice peaceful time while things were happening. And he even makes a massage's comment about how, oh, I guess that's where, what men are for, to go out and do the, the important things while the women sit at home. Ha ha ha. Uh, right on cue, the maid enters and tells Kay that they don't have any ham left because she gave it all to the German pilot. What German pilot? says Clem. Kay plays coy as Clem gets increasingly excited. Didn't he have a gun? Yes, but she took it from him. And I suppose you gave him tea as well. Milk, actually. She's just being very nonchalant about the whole thing. And yeah. Like, oh, you know, the, the German pilot. And just not giving him the detail he wants. So Which I didn't really understand since she was not super distressed, but like she was a, a little overwhelmed and affected after the police came to uh take him away but and in this scene it's like it's almost like nothing happened yeah she's trying to play it off like it's no big deal yeah. and she even like lights a cigarette and takes a few puffs like she's a, a cool action hero and yeah. then she like places the cigarette in his mouth when she tells him she just took the gun from him and oh gave him milk actually like she's a, a cool action hero with her quips the comedy sketch is interrupted by the maid again who tells them that lady belden is downstairs uh, waiting to complain about the engagement Kay goes down to talk to her, and uh, Lady Belden's main complaint, other that Vin is a uh, lower-class gutter trash, is that they're both too young to get married, Carol being only 18 and Vin being not yet 20. Kay points out that Lady Belden herself married young and asks if she regretted it. Uh, Lady Belden didn't, but reveals her husband died in the army after only three weeks of marriage, and she doesn't want Carol to suffer the same way. Uh, she realizes there's no stopping it, though, and gives in. This is another scene that has way too much this goes on for way too long and has way too much unnecessary detail because Kay talks about how oh I read uh, a history of your entire family and uh, did you know that uh, many women in in the Belden family uh, married at 12 years of age and then they have this short conversation about one of the Beldens who was beheaded as a lord and all this other stuff and just Jesus Christ I though because it reminded me of carol's attitude towards vin in the scene where they meet it's like it's almost the the tables have turned here it's mrs miniver to it's mrs miniver's turn to remind 
lady building of her place and of her of her family's history and to kind of turn her own arguments against her. So I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that scene. It felt like almost a carbon copy of the scene from Cavalcade where the mother has the discussion with the I don't even remember her former servant. Her former servant who is yeah. now upper class. Because yeah. uh, the former servant and Lady Belden are wearing the exact, exact same kind of like upper class. Yeah, you they know, have a fur coat. Fur coat, uh, white gloves, string of pearls. In, in both scenes, it's uh, two women sitting on a couch together. Yeah. And uh, one not being okay with the marriage and the other being fine with the marriage. And... Yeah, it just it felt like a, a an echo of that scene. There's a lot of uh, very similar scenes between this movie and Cavalcade. And, and in both scenes, the mom of the uh, groom to be defending their son's honor, and you know he's you know he's a good kid. He's a good he's a good man. Why isn't he good enough for your daughter? Or yeah, class class disparities in both cases being the the main problem. And Vin is also an exact copy-paste of both the sons from Cavalcade. He even has the same, like, huge grin the entire time. Like, oh, this is all just a fun adventure, and isn't it all grand? And there's Bright-eyed, bushy-tail. Yeah, just no concept or thought to uh, the amount of suffering or the potential for this to go bad. It's like, oh, well, of course we're going to win the war. This is just an opportunity to be a hero. Yeah. I enjoyed the the interaction between Kay and and, uh, Lady Belden. It's nice. It was a nice interaction to me in the sense that uh, in the very first scene that they share... Lady Belden is like shitting on the middle class and kind of putting Kay in her place and then she has this opportunity to turn things around here and to sort of start bonding with her also because she says, well, you know, we're going to be family so we might as well start uh, having tea together and having biscuits and, and bond over how much we love our, our children and all that. So I, I appreciated that. She does concede that Vin is a good-looking boy, and she can see where he got his looks from, from Mrs. Miniver. And also, I don't know if it's here or later, but she concedes that the only good thing about the the rose that the station master has is is at least it has a good name. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Miniver. Yeah, she... Her ice is thawed a little bit in the scene. It just takes... It just, every scene in this movie just takes way too long to get where it's going. Just overstays its welcome way too much. Just... Why do we need to have this whole conversation about, oh, I checked out a, a book about your family history from the library and I'm going to tell you about your ancestors from 700 years ago to make my point. Just just ask her about her own marriage. Jesus Christ. Next scene, uh, the family minus Vin are all together in a bunker. Uh, we've never heard about the bunker. They've never said anything about it. There's all of a sudden... We've never seen it also because we see some some shots around the house before that and, and that bunker wasn't there before. Nope. Just all of a sudden they have a bunker and they're inside of it. No yeah. no explanation. 
Kay is reading Alice in Wonderland as a bedtime story to the children, uh, and afterwards Clem goes out for a smoke, and Kay joins them as they look at the explosions and lights on the horizon. He asks her uh, if he, she wants anything from the house and makes a joke about how uh, he's not going to risk his life for her knitting needles again. Yeah. And it's a really small bunker. They've got a, a bunk bed, and both the children are on the bottom, yeah. and the cat are on the bottom bunk, and the top bunk has packages with their names on them yeah they get probably like essentials or maybe important documents and stuff like that yeah they're they're emergency bug out bags and some sardine cans yeah on the top bunk and then the there's no room for another bed because it's such a small bunker so it's just clem and Kay just sitting in chairs yeah at the side of the bed they head back in after the smoke and clay uh clem demonstrates how to close the air vent in case of a gas attack uh, what happens then, asks Kay. Then we suffocate, says Clem. They make small talk as the gunfire and bombs get louder and closer until the whole bunker is shaking and things are falling off the shelves. Even they... the kids. Yeah, they start talking about Alice in Wonderland and uh, they quote like the last paragraph of it and the gunfire gets louder, the explosions get louder, things start to shake, stuff starts to fall off the top bunk. You get a shot of uh, the cat is sleeping next to Toby and Toby just reaching out like grabbing its tail for comfort. The children wake up and start crying uh, and the lights go out in the bunker. Uh, the noise finally dies down and the frightened parents do their best to calm the frightened children. And, uh, the lights, it's completely black and the only illumination is like the door swings open a little bit mm. and you can just see this little wedge of light around the outline of yeah. the door and you can see smoke drifting into the bunker. Yeah. And then uh, Toby weepily says, uh, they nearly killed us di- this time, didn't they? And it's, yeah, the war is finally become real for him too at this point yeah it's just a scene where they're they're trying their best to keep going and just life as usual and their whole attitude towards the war throughout this whole movie just seems to be to ignore it to the best of their ability and not talk about it and just continue on as best they can while the the war just creeps closer and closer until it gets to the point where you can't ignore it sweet little moment also when they talk about uh, Alice in Wonderland Kay says it's the first book she read and I think it was also uh, Clem's first book yep. it was nice uh, seeing them also as not just as parents or as people but as couple and trying to comfort each other also uh, it was maybe not unnecessary scene but I enjoyed the interactions between them between both of them as a couple and their the way that they were trying to comfort their their children and do their best to you know keep face uh keep a strong face uh while the bombing was happening yeah Kay is clearly on the verge of having a meltdown Clem throughout this entire movie just seems like he's just having a fun adventure like he's always making goofs and wisecracks like about the oh you close this and then we suffocate ha 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 like, I think he's trying to lighten the mood he never he never seems genuinely bothered by anything that's going on not to me at least 
I feel like it has something to do also with he's not apart from that scene when he goes on the boat and goes to rescue some of the soldiers he doesn't see any of the action up close like his son would so it's it's almost like the war isn't necessarily very real to him either he's got his role to play in it and he goes on patrol sometimes at night with with the other man but he's not in it as much as their son is it feels like he has a much more like uh what a time to be alive feeling towards the whole thing yeah yeah and it's it's nice so long as it doesn't encroach too much because there's a line uh, when the men are called at 2 a.m. to the bar where one of them says about, uh, I'm all for doing my duty, but being woken up at 2.30 a.m. is is a little much. <laughs> like, there, it's wartime. There's no a.m. or p.m. and There's just wartime all the time at that point. So war is a fun novelty for them yeah. is, is more the feeling I get from Clem. Which feels awkward because when it was the attitude of the young students, you know, and all quiet on the Western Front, it's like, okay, yeah, they're young and immature and they don't know what to expect. But this guy, he's, like we said earlier, he's probably in his mid-40s. So he would have been alive during World War One as a teenager, as a, as a young person. So to have already lived through a First World War and know what it's like or at least having heard what it must have been like and then still having that attitude as an adult it's it's kind of weird yeah that i didn't even think about that till you mentioned it just now but there is there is no mention of the first world war at all in this movie it's like the history never happened history began with the opening shot of this movie yeah because, like it tells us in the opening uh, text scroll, like everything was beautiful and idyllic and happy before this happened, right? So, what world? What other? What World War One? What? Huh? Never heard of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the other uh, conflict that sent them to to Africa in cavalcade mm-hmm. that never happened. No, it was all sunshine and rainbows. If it hadn't been for th- that darn Fuhrer. Yeah, the, having you know, I've never lived through. A world war myself but i've i have relatives who were alive for world war Two. yes and the, the stories that they were telling us when i was a kid honestly that's it's dreadful it not it just doesn't seem like it was an adventure for for everybody no not a thing to be excited about no we go from there to the train station where vin and carol are returning from their honeymoon when they make it back to the house, Vin and Carol are shocked to find large portions uh, of the house have been destroyed in the bombardments. Uh, but Kay and Clem seem unfazed. They just, like, oh, here's the house. And Clem's like, oh, we'll need to put some blankets up to, you know, to make it not so drafty. Ha ha ha. Yeah, it's almost, again, it's almost like nothing happened. It's just, oh, okay, the, the house is still standing. There's just some holes here and there. Yep. They seem completely unfazed by it. Just, Yeah. Well, Clem is also, I don't know if that has anything to do with their reaction, but Clem is also an architect, so he knows what to do uh, to rebuild the <laughs> the house. Yes, when uh, Mrs. Belden first enters the train, uh, she first she gets his Miss Miniver's name wrong mm-hmm. and has to be corrected. And she goes, oh, you're the wife of that uh, lawyer and she, architect, really. And Mrs. Belden's like, oh, I knew it was something like that. Mm. One or the other. Yeah, lawyer, architect, same thing. One of those people that wasn't born into to money. <laughs> Idiots. 
Upstairs, Kay and Carol have a moment alone, and Carol says that they've had a lifetime of happiness the last few days. It's only beginning, says Kay, but Carol turns to her and says she's not afraid to face the truth. She loves Vin, but she knows that she may lose him. He may be killed any day, any hour. Every moment is precious. If she loses him, there will be enough time for tears later. Kay and Carol hug, and Vin comes in carrying luggage, ending the conversation. It was a, a nice moment, but at the same time, it felt, okay, realistic. She she knows that it might happen, but it just, it's one of those speeches that's definitely, that just sounds like a, it's fabricated. It's definitely a, a movie speech. It's It's not the way real people talk. Yeah, this was written by a scriptwriter. Yeah. I thought, you're right about that, but also, even if it was uh, stilted and not authentic, it was nice to have someone finally acknowledge what's happening in at least a, a truthful way and not just try and pretend like nothing is happening and nothing's going on and just quietly stew in their their anxiety and just kind of like vibrate with it but never actually voice it yeah and the the way that uh Kay reacts at the end of that uh of that speech also shows that the way carol talked made her almost made her realize that yeah her son might die any moment because more than before she seemed you know a little worried before but it's it almost feels like a a veil has like fallen onto her her face clearly shows more worry and she embraces carol and just it feels like almost like carol is the adult in that conversation and Kay is the one who's being schooled on the realities of war yeah carol seems to be the most mature out of all of the characters she put, puts Vin in his place when she first arrives, and now she's actually having the the strength and fortitude to face the reality of the situation they're in and, and talk about it with someone else. Yeah. Whereas everyone else's strategy is to just uh, continue on life and pretend as uh, as if uh, nothing is happening and uh, everything's fine and uh, life life is normal. Just gotta sit here and knit and pretend like bombs aren't going off, and then. The long-awaited flower competition. It's a, a big, there's a big tent, big striped tent. There's a band, huge crowd of people sitting. There's music. There, when we first come onto the scene, there's people singing. And as the band plays, Lady Belden sits with the Minivers, uh, except Clem, who is out on patrol. He got out of it. It almost reminded me uh, about that sequence in Cavalcade when they're at that little like festival at the beach. At the beach, and there's like, different competitions. There are people singing. There's that child who cries because she didn't win the competition, and all that. It's very yeah, very similar. Yeah. It feels like a, a little festival. Yeah, very similar uh, aesthetic yeah. for both of them. Much bigger tent in this case. And that's happening at uh, Lady Belden's estate. Yep. Lady Belden sits with the Minivers, except Clem, who's out on patrol, and tells her butler to get the paper with the judge's ruling on the roses already. She's tired of waiting. (laughs) They're still debating, he replies, and Lady Belden says, that's ridiculous. What do they even have to debate about? Vin asks her if she's seen the Station Master's rose, and she curtly replies that she hasn't, uh, but not even two seconds later, uh, grudgingly admits that she has. I have not. 
that's a lie I have. Uh, Vin asks which is better, and she says that's for the judges to decide. Mm -hmm. uh, Vin tells her that the judges are scared of her, so she'll definitely get it. The butler returns with the judge's paper, and to the surprise of absolutely no one, uh, Lady Belden has won, according to the paper. Yep. And uh, the station master is in second place. Kay innocently tells her that this means an awful lot to the station master, and that Lady Belden could reverse the decision if she just disagreed with it. But I don't, yelps the miserable hag. Lady Belden then heads up to the stage to, to present the awards, and when she gets to the award for best rose, because, like, individual categories, there's a whole table full of trophies for yeah. different types of flowers, and uh, the biggest and most important is the, is the rose at the end. So when she gets to the award for best rose, the two finalists are placed in front of her, and she stares at the station master's rose in silence. She was making a speech, and the roses get placed, and she trails off and uh, gazes in awe and wonder at, at the, the Mrs. Minerva Rose. Mrs. Minerva, God damn it! I told you. <laughs> first place, which is a silver trophy. First place is a silver trophy. I don't... Whatever. First place, silver trophy goes to... And then we cut to the station master looking anxious in the crowd. Uh, Kay and Vince smiling. And then back to Lady Belden, who says... The station master... The crowd erupts into huge cheers, and the station master is so shocked he can't even get up out of his seat to accept the award. Yeah. He's just completely in shock. Just, he's not smiling or anything. He's just... Complete disbelief. Complete disbelief. He's just numb. He, can't, he tries to get up, and then he falls back down into his seat. He just... He can't handle it. Lady Belden shushes the crowd and says that the Beldens aren't used to competition uh, because they used to be able to cut their heads off. She actually says this. Like, you, you used to be able to just cut the peasant's head off, uh, and you can't anymore, and more's the pity. <laughs> and everyone laughs as if she wasn't just talking about how she wants to murder people for, <laughs> for disagreeing with her. And, like, she's not joking at all here. No, well, she's not joking. She's actually lamenting the fact that she can't do it. Yeah, she, she's... It's unacceptable behavior anymore. She, she says, you know, back in the day, you used to just... If the, the cattle got uppity, you used to just be able to kill them, but now you actually have to pretend like the livestock are people, and it sucks. Mm. But there's no one she'd rather lose to, because the station master is a man of spirit, and she likes a man of spirit. And I almost thought that they were going to bone after... That there's going to be some sort of romance. No. Plot. They're of the same age and she's, she, her husband died so long ago and maybe that's why she's so grumpy all the time. She just needs to have her pipes cleaned. This is not a movie for people boning. Station Master's just got to ring her bell. <laughs> he knows how to do it. Uh, Station Master himself finally makes his way to the stage as the band plays He's a Jolly Good Fellow, and he takes the trophy. Uh, Lady Belden is then informed that enemy planes are on their way, and she tells the crowd to go home and find shelter. And she says if they want to shelter with her, she, uh, they can. And Yeah, she offers people shelter and says that there, there's plenty of sardine cans in her, uh, in her bunker or in her cellar. And... Yeah, because she fell for that guy who's selling canned goods. Yeah. Kay and Carol drive into the airfield uh, because he's got to get up in the sky to fight the incoming planes. And Kay assures Carol that he'll be all right as, as they leave. He, uh, and he plants another big old smooch on his mom's mouth as he gets out of the car. As this guy's like, oh, not again. On his uh, wife slash mother. Oh, fucking damn it. Fade to Kay and Carol slowly driving down a darkened road while planes fly overhead. And this 
probably would be my favorite scene in the movie just them slowly because they have to have their lights off even on the car and there's Mm -hmm. no lights on the road and they're just creeping down this darkened uh dirt path at like five miles an hour while the planes fly and bombs drop and they're just it's like they're crawling through a battlefield without trying to get noticed yeah just relying on moonlight yeah just stay at the airfield at that point geez they sit and listen to the gunfire and explosions, uh, and then a plane with both engines on on fire passes over them and crashes in a field because Cade says she needs to, to cut the engines so they don't notice and they're just trying to be as inconspicuous as possible. Yeah. And then we get, like, the maybe the only sp- special effect in the whole scene where this in plane... the whole movie. Yeah, the plane crashing in the field and... I, it's neat. It explodes. Yeah, so I was, when I was doing the notes and fun facts and all that, I was surprised that it got nominated for special effects because, like you said, this is the only special effects we get in the movie. Yeah, there's next to nothing. For a, a movie about war, there is shockingly little actual war in this movie. Anything that we hear, even the bombardments and all that, we are inside with... The characters, like when they're in the bunker and all yeah. that, we don't see any of the bombing happen. Yep, it's always noise and lights on the horizon, yeah. and then even when it comes close for the bunker, it's just, yeah, you're inside the bunker, so you see the bunker shake, and then uh, they come out later, and the damage is already done to the house, but you never see any damage actively happening while it's yeah. happening. It's always far off, it's always just loud noises. You don't go to Dunkirk with Clem. You just see him getting the mission and then him coming back from the mission. So you, you never see the actual war happening. Yeah. It's weird. And then they see the plane crash in the field and then they both look out the window and they're freaked out because they think it might be Vin's plane. But then Kay says, it couldn't be Vin. It's too soon. He, he wouldn't be up in the air. He wouldn't be there being shot down yet. He, they just dropped him off. Yeah. It's too soon. I wonder if the fact that we don't see any bombardment and all that, any real action happening is a way to also keep the audience at bay of the war. Like, to not scare anybody. You know, there's definitely a lot of propaganda happening uh, through the movie, but if you also scare the masses, then that would kind of have not a... Uh, not the opposite effect of what you want, but it's... You want them the right amount of scared. Exactly. Not not so scared that they're uh, frozen, but yeah. scared enough to uh, give uh, money, shall we say. Yeah, and ra- you know, raise people's spirits against the war. Or peop- uh, people's spirits against the Germans. I have an alternate theory, which is they might have not have had as many explosives at their disposal because they might have needed those explosives for the actual war can't be wasting them on a movie that definitely makes sense yeah so no we're not gonna let you blow up these planes we need the planes (laughs) two more planes pass by dropping bombs and shooting and the women take as much cover as they can they like huddle down in in the seats of the car yeah once the planes pass by Kay says that the bombs hit the village and they must go and see if anyone needs help uh carol's only response is a groan And then Carol looks up and sees bullet holes in the car's roof and realizes that Carol has been shot. Yeah. 
though there's no blood we never see any injury on her she even said she's supposed to have a a a wound on her neck i think i thought it looked like that at first but then carol uh Kay like doesn't react to it at all and carol says she doesn't even know where she's been shot and it doesn't hurt at all and there's no it it looked like there was a little spot on her neck but there's no blood coming out of it which neck wounds like pump like a, a fire hose. So. Yeah, especially near the the artery, the carotid. Yeah, she yep. would be bleeding heavily. Yeah, she'd be dumping that stuff everywhere. But there's not a single drop of blood in this whole movie. I don't think. Kay tells Carol not to worry. They're almost home, and then we just see them back at the house. And at the house, uh, Kay phones for an ambulance while Carol lies on the floor right inside uh, the door. Uh, but Kay is told that all the ambulances are busy because, in case you didn't notice, there's an air raid going on right now. Yeah. The fact that there's no blood showing might also be because of the code, because of the production code. Yep. Uh, married couples don't have sex, and you don't bleed if you get shot. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't this wonderful? Ho- hooray for censorship. <laughs> Kay kneels next to Carol and says that uh, the ambulance will be there uh, any moment, and she promises that Carol will be okay. Carol asks for some water, and Kay gets up to get it, and when Kay returns, Carol isn't breathing anymore. Uh, Kay pulls Carol into her chest and sobs. She, like, she asks for some water, and she's not even gone for ten seconds, but by the time she gets back, she's dead. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that the fact that we didn't get the usual, you know, the character is dying and exhales heavily to show that they're that they're dying there's no nothing grandiose about the this death she just goes quietly she does have a final breath but it's almost like a a surprise like huh and then she Mm -hmm. she's gone so yeah they did a they did a good job with that scene it didn't They had some restraint for once, and it didn't linger, and it didn't. They didn't wallow in it. It's just shitty tragedy where someone gets shot, and then all the other ambulances are out dealing with other stuff, and she. Just... And it's not the person you expected to get shot. Yeah, it was. It wasn't Vin. Yeah. It was. They actually twisted the uh, the formula, and it wasn't the soldier that died. It was his his wife in a in tragedy, and she just yeah just dies there on the floor because there's there's no help. Next scene is Vin returning home. Uh, his parents wait for him right inside the door, and Kay steps forward, ready to tell him what happened, but he says he already knows. He asks uh, where Carol is, and Kay tells him she's upstairs in his room, and he goes to see her as Kay holds Clem and cries. That was another good scene because the camera doesn't follow him. It pans up to the top of the stairs, and it shows him walking up the stairs, and then he turns the room, and you see a shadow on the wall of the mm-hmm. door to his room opening, and then closing as he goes in, and but you don't. The camera never goes into the room with him. Yeah. Is very uh, muted and understated and reserved, but also yeah, respectful of the loss. Yep, but also appropriately sorrowful scene. Yeah. We move from there to the church again, where a hymn is being sung, while Vin looks at the empty pew next to Lady Belden, where Carol used to sit. And uh, the church is in complete disrepair at this point. Uh, windows are smashed. There's a, a huge gaping hole in the roof. Like entire walls have crumbled. Like it is, it is in ruins. The pulpit is not where it used to be. It's a it's a wooden uh, pulpit instead of the the stone pulpit yeah. that we see at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it's just like some boxes stacked on wood. Yeah. Uh, the preacher climbs the pulpit and delivers a speech. 
And that's the speech that was uh, used by Roosevelt. Yep, here is the speech. We in this quiet corner of England have suffered the loss of friends very dear to us, some close to this church. George West, choir boy, and the camera uh, points to an empty spot uh, where the choir boys are sitting. <laughs> James Ballard, station master and bell ringer, and the proud winner only an hour before his death of the Belden Cup for his beautiful Minerva Rose. They fucking killed him. Minerva Rose. M- Minerva Rose. <laughs> They killed him off camera an yeah. hour after he won the award for the flower competition. This well, at least he got to die knowing that he won the competition. This felt so needlessly cruel to me. Yes. No, I I see that you're trying to make me feel bad about this tragedy, but no, no movie, no. An hour after he won the award, why? Why? Uh, And our hearts go out in sympathy to the two families who share the cruel loss of a young girl who was married at this altar only two weeks ago. She broke her grandmother's record because she was only married for two weeks before she beefed it. The homes of many of us have been destroyed and the lives of young and old have been taken. There's scarcely a household that hasn't been struck uh, to the heart. And why? Surely you must have asked yourselves this question. Why, in all conscience, should these be the ones to suffer? Children, old people, a young girl at the height of her loveliness. Why these? Are these our soldiers? Are these our fighters? Why should they be sacrificed? I shall tell you why. Because this is not a war of soldiers in uniform. It is the war of the people, of all the people. And it must be fought not only on the battlefield, but in the cities and in the villages, in the factories and on the farms, in the home and in the heart of every man, woman, and child who loves freedom. Well, we have buried our dead, and we shall not forget them. Instead, they will inspire us with an unbreakable determination to free ourselves and those who come after us from the tyranny and terror that threaten to strike us down. This is the people's war. This is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it, then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Vin then rises and goes to stand next to Lady Belden as the congregation begins to sing Onward, Christian Soldiers. And the camera pans up to a hole in the roof to show planes flying by in a V for victory formation. That was the image that was on the posters. The end. Asterisk, however, because there is an important message uh, included with with the end credits of this movie. The most important message. Delivered in all capital letters on, on the ending title card. And there it goes. It says, America needs your money. Buy defense bonds and stamps every payday. (laughs) The end. In case you couldn't tell, (laughs) this is propaganda pay up. In a movie about a middle uh, middle class English family, America still finds a way to ask for money. This entire movie took place in England. And then at the end you say, hey, America needs money. Give us. (laughs) Every payday give us. Oh, Jesus. What do you think of Mrs. Miniver? 
It was propaganda. Yeah. Uh, like, it, it's it's. This movie won the best picture writing on a, a, a wave of patriotism and wartime feeling and, and national pride, right? This is not a good movie. This is not any sort of spectacular piece of art. This is just, this is just rah, rah, uh, we've got a war to fight, and it hits all the right notes of these are the good people and these are the bad people, and this is everyone's war, and, like, even... The the speech at the end, especially when the preacher is basically staring directly into the camera and saying, "This is about freedom. <laughs> Give us your money." And I agree with you, and yet, like, I feel like this is, along with All Quiet on the Western Front and Wings, this is one of the only movies so far to me that felt true to society, the it, the society of its time. And that's, I, I completely agree with everything you said about it being a, a propaganda movie. But I, yeah, I definitely feel like I understand why it won Best Picture and I understand why it resonated with people. Yeah, it's it's saying all the things they want to hear and yeah. it shares all the same uh, opinions that the, the majority shares. This is, it's a very low-hanging uh pandering uh, appeal to the masses kind of thing and in the midst of all the propaganda i like i told you right after we watched the movie i also felt my first reaction was i loved it because it had some very touching moments it had a really nice depiction of family life and family love um between all the the characters um we're almost a week after we've watched the movie. I, I feel like I have a I'm less in the I loved it and oh yeah, this was kind of a good movie, but it has it had a lot of redeeming uh, qualities to me in the like human connection and human interaction department. The pacing of it was just so miserably slow, just. Every, almost every single scene just went on for just way too long and they just belabored every single point and just took too long to get there and just too much padding like you said this could this movie could be a half hour shorter and i was yeah. really ready for it to be over a, a good 40 minutes before it was i this movie was a drag it was a, a slog to get through for me i just <laughs> i didn't find any of the characters except from toby entertaining it, it at all they all just seemed like really they seem to be designed to be the most normal, inoffensive people because they're supposed to appeal to the widest possible audience, right? So there's yeah. no actual character to them. I had a sweet spot for, yeah, for Toby and for Carol, just how uh, smart she is and uh, the way that she interacts with Vin and puts him in his place sometimes and she's willing to stand up sometimes to her grandmother also for how rigid she is about the class system and, uh, and shitting on people of the middle class and all that so and there yeah not every not every character is like that but i definitely had some appreciation for toby and carol i don't understand necessarily why it was all about mrs miniver i know the novel was called mrs miniver but they could have easily changed the the title for the movie and and 
maybe make it the miniverse or something or something else she's not particularly like a a character that I'm drawn to or at, at that I don't think that the the audience is also made to be drawn to her she's just the one that the camera sits with the most because yeah. Clem Vin goes off to fight but the camera stays with her and then Clem goes off on his Dunkirk adventure but the camera stays with her yeah I also left a lot of their conversations about the rose out of mm-hmm. my synopsis but they talk about that rose a lot in the movie like there there's constant bickering about uh how dare the station master enter that contest and yeah. why do you think they focus so much why was that such a huge part of the plot because it's almost more important and focused on by the characters in the war do you think it goes back to carol talking about it's not a time to lose our humor and we need to to not let normal life be disrupted by the war because then the enemy really wins is that what they're going for i honestly don't know because it didn't feel like there was any what yeah symbolism really behind that uh behind that flower yeah, behind cl- that rose the closest thing this movie has to a climax is that flower competition and i don't why like what why do they focus on it so much what are they trying to say this whole movie to me like you were saying when people don't necessarily pay attention to the war going on it feels more yeah it feels like almost like it's supposed to be a reminder that life goes on that there's yeah yeah there's war but it's it's almost it's in the background and you still have to keep living your life as you usually do even during wartime it felt like with Clem especially and given the tone of the beginning of the movie yeah because like the first scene with miss miniver where she gets on the bus she has to stop the bus because oh she she figures out the bus is going in the wrong direction and she tells that to the the uh one of the workers on the bus and he uh, laughs and goes uh yeah well the wrong the opposite direction is the only direction this bus doesn't go ha 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 and there's just a lot of goofs in and and uh, a chuckle fuckery like that in the in the opening of the movie and this whole thing feels like a sitcom that got interrupted by a war but wants to continue being a sitcom yeah and try and ignore the war see that especially with Clem like almost everything he says feels like it should be accompanied by a laugh track it's so bizarre I can see that yeah he is he's like a sitcom dad that got put in the wrong movie but he's he's gonna keep being the sitcom dad god damn it yeah. he's not gonna he's not going to uh, give into this uh, dour war shit like I said, I don't know why it's uh, why there was so much focus on the on the rose. Why why name the rose after Mrs. Miniver? I have no idea. I, I I honestly I couldn't tell you anything about the symbolism behind that. Maybe it's that uh, she is supposed to be average, and so it's supposed to be uh, a metaphor for how the average people are the true beauty and treasure, because this is the people's war. Yeah. But I... Yeah, I don't... It's weird. It's a weird one. And it, I don't I don't know what they were going for. It's a lot of confusing 
things and bad pacing and just it just feels like a mishmash of a lot of stuff all just smashed together and here you go and it's wartime so you don't really need to try that hard to you know make a piece of propaganda that people are gonna gobble up and and cheer that speech at the end in the church felt very out of place oh yeah so i just feel it more than anything else in the movie it that was the the piece of propaganda that it felt super super out of place it's just like the it's the tone got turned like to uh to the highest like propaganda got got turned to well it's just it's it's written for american audiences which is why they were he kept saying freedom in it yes yes (laughs) so the whole movie set in england and then you have a preacher get up at the end and like stare down the barrel of the camera and deliver the speech to americans yeah and then the the calling for americans to buy defense bonds and stamps at the end it's but in particular that nobody, especially nobody says freedom uh, uh, no. throughout the whole movie before that. There's nobody really preaching for anything. Nobody's even that into the war for the, yeah. the whole rest of the movie. They're mostly just getting along with business as usual and trying to ignore it. And then yeah. at the end you have this like rousing call to action that was nowhere else in the entire two hours of the movie. No. And also, this movie is over two hours long, and almost nothing happens in it. Like, when you think about the actual beats of what happens in the story, it's like the uh, him and Carol court each other. Mm-hmm. He joins the military. Clem goes off on the boat adventure, which we don't even go with. Yeah. We never see Vin fight anything. The German soldier scene, which is 15 minutes. Then... The flower competition, and Carol dies, and the movie ends. And that's it. That's over two hours for that, like, handful of things. It's just, yeah, wild. Nah, it's, a, it's another hard one to rate for me because I enjoyed it when we were watching it, but then the more I think about it, it's like... You can't take it with you all over again. I loved it while we were watching it. I was entertained. I absolutely loved the depiction of the the family and the characters and all that. And then the more I think about it, it's like, eh, there's kind of nothing special about it. I couldn't stand it (laughs) while we were watching it. And my my opinion of it has not improved having to watch it a second time for synopsis. Yeah, that's the hard part about your job for for this podcast is you have to sit through it once and then sit through it another time to uh, do a synopsis. Well, it did give me the treat of I didn't have to watch the soldier scene again. I just skipped that whole 15 minutes and didn't write anything down about it because I knew I could just complain about how empty and long it was from memory. Is there anything that you liked about the movie? I appreciate that they uh, were self-aware enough to have the twist of uh, Carol dying instead of Vin, but that was just the original author's intelligence. And Toby. Toby was great. Him uh, talking about people dying and writing letters in blood and all that stuff. Uh, The the courtship between Carol and Vin was very uh, authentic for young, awkward love, but... Another knock against this movie that I haven't really, I think, delved into yet is I am just so tired 
of the the pearl clutcher archetype. Mm-hmm. It, we have seen that so many times at this point. It's in almost every movie we've watched. Yeah. And I I'm just I'm sick of it. I if I see one more goddamn elderly woman with white gloves and opera glasses who's going to look down her nose at me for not uh, following her rigid social conventions. I mean, it's definitely going to happen again. <sighs> like this is one of their favorite archetypes and I'm uh, enough. It's going to happen again, I promise you, into the like 90s and 2000s. Like I, the the first example I have in my head right now when you're talking about it is uh, the mom in uh, Titanic, because she has uh, yeah she's definitely that that archetype of like we have money but also we don't have we don't have that much money anymore because your your dad's dead and we need you to marry into um into wealth so that we can keep going and have our our, our social status and all that of so. all of all the archetypes this really seems to be the past decade's favorite like the thirties and forties. They, I, don't, I feel like it's... She is always there. Yeah. In some form, under some name, she is always there. Sometimes she's just in the background. Sometimes she's part of the main cast. But she is always there. It gives you, as an audience member, something to root against and to have some, uh, you know, some strong feelings about in the movie. Well, it's uh, it's the, the whole purpose of that kind of character is like to give you some sort of a villain... And not just have a, a harmonious cast of characters. It gives you something to, yeah, to rebel against and to be to be mad about and to be entertained about. No, in this case, it was about her redemption, which I super don't care about. Like at the end, when she gave her speech and gave the award uh, to the station master, it does a a shot of her where she has like tears in her eyes, and I guess oh, she's come such a long way. I don't give a shit. You don't care about a character's redemption? No, not not that archetype's redemption when she's like in her what 70s and has been uh awful and uh belligerent to everyone around her for decades, but oh she gave a trophy to this one man this one time so she is redeemed. But not she's redeemed completely, but I enjoyed her, you know, her change of heart and giving Ballard his trophy an hour before he died. There, there's always time for for redemption far too little far too late for me plus i'm just worn out on that archetype and have no patience for it so ugh it's probably it's the only one so far of that archetype that we've seen have a redemptive moment uh, mrs kirby kind of came around at the end sort of <laughs> yeah. i i don't i don't care if they're redeemed or not i'm just tired of seeing them yeah. And I know, know we're in for plenty more. But I, I don't remember any in Casablanca, which is next. I haven't seen the entire movie, so <sighs> I couldn't tell you. We might be safe for one podcast at least. Where are we going to put it on our list? I put it on my list at number 10. Number 10? Between You Can Take It With You and Mutiny on the Bounty. Let me see my list. Yeah. <sighs> this is not a better movie than it happened one night. It happened one night is number 10 for me. Mm-hmm. So the question is, is this a better movie than You Can't Take It With You? Uh, they're both propaganda, but in different ways. Yeah. You Can't Take It With You for me is definitely a, a lot more naive. Yes. 
it is much more divorced from reality and much more insulting in in the propaganda it's trying to push. Yeah. So yeah, I it'll go at number eleven for me. Being in between, it happened one night, and you can't take it with you. We ended our our streak of good movies in the forties, but we'll pick it right back up again when we watch Casablanca. Do you think that Casablanca is going to be your new number one? I would be pretty surprised if it's not. I it's been over a decade since I watched it, but I remember really liking it. Okay. I remember really being impressed by it when I watched it. You're already setting my expectations for this one. Yeah. At the very least, be a good palate cleanser after this. I... Blah. <laughs> <laughs> not not into it. Not, not buying... I will not be buying any stamps or defense bonds. Not this payday or any payday. <laughs> God, remember when they used to ask to take your money? Now they just take it. Yeah. Those were the days. Yeah. Anything else about this movie? <sighs> I don't think so. Yeah, I think it's yeah, it's one of those movies that it's not necessarily a bad movie that I feel like we've had some good movies in the 40s already, but there's nothing super special about them either. Like I I find myself having a, a hard time saying things about the those movies because they're they're not great movies i'm not going to remember them vividly forever but they're also not bad movies uh, i think rebecca was a master class in, in visual storytelling yeah and uh how green is my valley had really really strong writing and this one doesn't it, I, there's no this movie has no strength to me it's just it's too long the pacing is bad it's just boring it just bored me it was just a slog to get through Anything else? No, I think that's it. Alrighty, well, Casablanca to look forward to next time. Yes. That'll be good. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.